two here this morning. And I want to start in verse number four. And I'll give the context of this, and after I read it, I'll set the setting of what's taking place here. Verse number four, it's Solomon coming not as a king, as he's addressing people. He could have. He is king at the time. But he said, I'm coming to you as a preacher. And this is what he says. I made me great works. I built in me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchids, I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water uh, there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and, maid- and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold. And the peculiar treasures of kings uh, of the province. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments. And that of all sorts. So I was great. It increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. Think of that statement. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of my labor. Things changed now. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and all the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, it wasn't the end he expected. All was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth, excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fools walk in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event, though, this is his problem, Happened to them all. My heart. As it happened to the fool, so it happened to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also was vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And now death and now dieth the wise man. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. Therefore, I hated life. Because the work that is wrought unto the Son is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do. We love you. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And Lord, I ask for your help. Lord, I pray that your word would speak to your people's heart, that it would be a help to us. Lord, that it would give us a proper perspective on life. Lord, that you would use this to strengthen us, to encourage us, to help us to see what is truly important, to heed what we're seeing here in your word. So, Lord, I beg you that you would help me to communicate that effectively. Please control what I say and how I say it. And, Lord, for those who are here in this, in this auditorium or even listening that have never truly trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, 
Lord, I pray that even this morning they repent and place their faith in Christ. Please work and convict hearts, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's times in, there's times in life, and the devil's good at getting us to do this, that you fight the wrong enemy. Um, that when it comes to life and, and where we put our efforts and our strengths and our energy, that there's many times that, that you do. You fight the wrong enemy. During the invasion of Normandy, which is, when you study that in history, it really is an incredible event that took place. Eisenhower led an effort. He knew what he needed to do was deceive Germany. He wanted to deceive Hitler of what was coming. He wanted Hitler to fight the wrong enemy. So what he wanted to do before they invaded. And so he devised a plan. I'm going to read about this plan, a direct quote um, from, a, from a historical source of what took place with Eisenhower's efforts. It says, in January 1994, Dwight, uh, General Dwight Eisenhower was appointed commander of Operation Overlord. In the months and weeks before D-Day, the Allies carried out a massive deception operation intended to make the Germans think that the main invasion target was this narrowest point between Britain and France, rather than Normandy. In addition... They led the Germans to believe that Norway and other locations were also potential invasion targets. Many tactics were used to carry out the deception, including fake equipment, a phantom army commanded by George Patton, and supposedly, supposedly based in England across from this narrow point. Double agents were used, fraudulent radio transmissions were used. This forced Germany to beef up defenses in those areas. Although Hitler was still concerned about Normandy, um, his focus began to change. The British and Canadians overcame light uh, opposition to capture the beaches codenamed Gold, Juno, and Sword, as did the Americans at Utah Beach. U.S. forces faced heavy resistance at Omaha Beach, where there were over 2,000 American casualties. However, by day's end, on that day, approximately 156,000 Allied troops had successfully stormed Normandy's beaches. According to some estimates, more than 4,000 Allied troops lost their lives in the D-Day invasion, with thousands more wounded or missing. Less than one week later, June 11th, think about this, one week later, and this is going back to World War II, think of what we had operation-wise to make this happen in that time frame. On June 11th, the beaches were fully secured with over 326,000 troops. More than 50,000 vehicles and some 100,000 tons of equipment had now landed at Normandy. It goes on, I'm still quoting from the source. For their part, the Germans suffered from confusion. Uh, they suffered from confusion in the ranks at the absence of celebrated commander Rommel, who was away on leave at the time. At first, Hitler, believing the evasion... Uh, was designed to distract Germany from the coming attack at the other locations, refused to release nearby divisions to join the counterattack. Reinforcements had to be called from further afield, causing delays. He also hesitated in calling for armored divisions to help in the defense. Moreover, the Germans were also hampered by effective Allied air support. The Air Force, of course, won the war. We all know that. <laughs> which took out many key bridges and forced the Germans to take long detours, as well as efficient Allied naval support, which helped protect advanced Allied troops. So the deception worked. It lessened casualties. 
it lessened his ability to get troops there. Exactly what they wanted to happen happened on D-Day. Hitler paused. What if this is a fake? What, 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 all, all that we've already heard about coming at this other location, he had to pause and it worked. What Hitler found out was he was wrong. He was wrong. Where his efforts were, there was no reason for his efforts to be there. He was fighting the wrong enemy in that sense. Solomon is finding out in our text that the real front, the real battle, has not been where he's been fighting. Where he spent his time and energy was in the wrong place. This was a man, the Bible says at one point, loved God. Think of this man growing up in David's household. This is the son of David and Bathsheba. The one that David said this would be the next king. There was a little bit, obviously, a, a, a small struggle when he finally became king. But the throne was his. But he grew up listening to Dad tell about Goliath. Could you imagine a seven-year-old Solomon listening to David tell about Goliath? Demonstrating how big he was. Dad, you weren't afraid? I wasn't, son. This was the Lord's battle. And through that, through the passion he saw in Dad, that Dad had for the Lord, that carried on to Solomon. The Bible directly tells us in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon loved God. However, you flip over a few chapters, and it changes. His love changes. It says he loved many strange women. That they had turned his heart. And so now you have, a, you have a man who knows God and knows the truth of God, has experienced great things. He is a man that the Lord appeared to twice. Guess how many times, how many times his dad had appearances from God? Zero. David never had one. Yet this man turned from God, lived his life in that matter, and now when he's writing this most important book that we have in the Bible... It is, it, uh, when, it, when it comes to the idea of perception of life, he is looking back at his life when he was living in that backslidden condition. And what he tried to do was live life under the sun. What he means by that is, I am trying to find meaning, as he said, as if there is no God. I'm trying to forget about it. I know the truths I heard as a young boy. I, I, know, I, I know what my dad did. But something else grabbed his heart, and he's trying, to, he's trying to still find meaning and purpose. But what he's going to realize is, and when he's coming to this conclusion right here, is I fought the wrong battle. Solomon comes to the conclusion, I have fought the wrong enemy. And that then left him, just like we see with what happened in Normandy, unprepared for the battle to come. So let's look at this a little bit. Just a couple of points here. First, I want us to look at his search, what he brings out here. Remember, if you can, by the way, you can go on our website or our YouTube channel, and you can listen to this entire book. We went through every verse of this book. I'd recommend you do it. If you weren't here for that, I would listen to the series on Ecclesiastes. And so what Solomon is giving us here, he is a man. Think how God used his backslidden condition. God's sovereignty is amazing. 
So he took this backslidden man, and he's actually going to use him as an, an object lesson, if you will, so important to all of us, because he put a man in place who had the power, the means, uh, more than anyone who has ever existed on earth, to try to find meaning in life apart from God. There's nobody that's been in a place like Solomon to try and find that. And as he goes through here, he's already been talking about it uh, bef- at the conclusion of chapter 1, coming into chapter 2. In verse 4, he's going on about his search for meaning, for purpose of life under the sun apart from God. 4 through 8, he says this, I made me great works. I built me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchids, I planted trees in them all of all kinds of fruit, I made pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees, I got me servants and maid servants and had servants born in my house, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me, I gathered me also silver and gold and peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces, I got me men singers and women singers uh, and, and the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments and that of all sorts. He says, in my search, I went to the business world, I went to entertainment, you name it, I went to pleasure. He mentions the houses he built, the palaces he built. He built a palace that many say that for his day was one of the wonders of the world. We're not even dealing with the temple. We're dealing with his house. His house was impressive. Uh, When Queen Sheba saw it, she said it was it was it was almost like the you know how you hear about the Grand Canyon and then you actually go just like that's how she described his house. Words just couldn't do it justice when she saw the palace that the man built. It took him seven years to build the temple. We know how how amazing and incredible that is. It took just about double the time to build his house. Thirteen years. From one source, I'm going to quote one source about his house. The royal palace of Solomon took twice as long as to build a temple. It was much more complicated. In fact, it was a whole complex of buildings with many different functions. Uh, 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 there, was a, uh, there was a treasury or a strong room holding his wealth. The judgment hall where Solomon's magnificent ivory throne stood. A special palace for the daughter of Pharaoh, Solomon's most high-born wife. <clears throat> living quarters for Solomon's multitude of wives and children. There's a whole lot of buildings right there, isn't there? Which no other male was ever allowed to enter. It would have been an impressive, amazing structure. So those who live for homes, this guy had the best home ever. Your, your home will never beat his. He goes on to deal with the parks that he built, the pools of water that he had in verses 4 through 6. The word orchid here gives us us an idea of how magnificent and beautiful these were. The word actually means paradise. He's making it gorgeous. You know, a place that he can just go out and try and find peace. Now that's what the world says. Just go out and... it's, It's what he's trying to do. He made it beautiful. He built means to keep it watered. I mean, he used his wisdom. He, he mentions how, how in this time, and that's what his point was, God allowed me to still to have my wisdom. He's not using it right. But the Lord didn't take it. Remember, this was the humble man before God, that when God told him, you can have anything you want. And Solomon's desire to please God. He, he didn't come about a name for himself, or greatness for himself, or money, or anything else. He said, please just give me, just give me wisdom. 
that I can lead your people. And the Lord honor that, so you're going to have more wisdom than anybody. And God was, uh, the Lord responding to humbleness as he does. The Lord always rejects pride. Do you understand that? When we are so worried about our name and making ourselves great and making ourselves look good, the Lord rejects that. And Solomon was, at that time, concentrated on God. So the Lord blessed him with more wisdom than any other man. He talks about all the servants he had and made servants in verse, the first part of verse number 7. There are those Jewish scholars who compute the number of servants that he had. Think about this. He had 48,000 servants. I think, that's like the, I think that is like the population of Wasilla or something like that, isn't it? <laughs> 48,000. He got into livestock, which would have been incredibly lucrative. He says, I had more cattle than anyone before me in Jerusalem. Verse 8, he gets into his wealth. I gather me also silver and gold from the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. He was, we know he was incredibly wealthy. Collecting silver and gold from kings, different resources and mines. He had many businesses that, as we read about his life in the book of Kings, he had, he had business agreements with Tyre, Phoenicians, uh, Tarsus, uh, several places that he had these business agreements in place. He had wisdom, his wisdom just went to all fields. I mean, he knew how to make these arrangements. The Bible tells us he imported 666 talents of gold every year. A talent weighing about 130 pounds. So that comes to about 20,000 pounds of gold coming into him each year. 2,000 pounds a month, about. It's interesting that the Bible does say the number is 666. Man's number, if you will. How Solomon's trying to do everything from man's perspective. He was still to this day the wealthiest man to ever live. He makes Bill Gates look like a poor man. In our day, he would have the equivalent of $2 trillion. He tried entertainment. I had singers and I did the parties and the banquets. They would sing, they would dance. So he's going to the pleasure side, which he'd already mentioned earlier, by the way. But he's referring back to that. Listen, I had all the entertainment. I had that in place so that in the evenings come, if I want to be entertained, I could. If I wanted the lust of my flesh fulfilled, I could do it. He directly proclaims in verse 9, I was great. He became famous. He was great for his day. He sees all his work. And he knows from man's point of view, from a humanistic standpoint, that he really did accomplish something from a humanistic standpoint. Verse 10, he didn't hold back. I mean, think of the statements he makes here. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from 
any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of my, all my labor. Here's a guy who had the ability to follow through with this. The position, the power, the funds. Whatever his heart wanted, he took. That's what he did. And the Lord's allowing it to take place to show you're, you're on the wrong front. The day's going to come when you realize that. D-Day's going to hit and you're going to realize, what have I been doing? What have I been doing? See, for many, that day finally comes where D-Day hits and you're like, this isn't where the battle is. I've missed it. Eleven through seventeen is the sad conclusion. I fought the wrong enemy. After he, he was able, in the moments, in those moments that he would be at one of his entertainment banquets, or at the moments one of his one of his building uh, uh, projects was finished, he could rejoice. It was fleeting. There's pleasure in sin for a season. Here's his conclusion, though. Keep in mind, this is not the conclusion of a foolish man. This is the conclusion of, of, of the wisest man apart from Jesus Christ who's ever been on this earth. He says, but then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, he stunned all vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. It didn't work. He found no meaning. He found no purpose. He searched it in all these areas, but he came up empty. So from his search, we go to the sad conclusion. He concluded it was vanity. Vexation of spirit, no satisfaction. And, and when you define that, what he's talking about, the, the, the meaning to me is, is, is what it illustrates is powerful. It means eating the wind. You're hungry, you're starving, but you try and literally eat the wind to satisfy. It will never happen. It will never fulfill. There was no profit. It was vanity. It was vexation. So here he is, an old man. He's accomplished more than anyone. He has anything his heart desires. And now he's at the end of his life, a man who lived the significant bulk of his life in rebellion to the Creator that he knew trying any way to find meaning and purpose, and at times he thought he did. He was able to rejoice for moments in the work of his hands, in what he led. But then now here he is looking back saying, I was wrong. It was all vanity. It was vexation of spirit. It was a waste of time. 12 through 16, we see he's fighting the wrong enemy. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness. And folly. For what can a man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. He saw how living on this earth, wisdom is needed. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. This is where he recognized, here's what I missed. This is what I missed right here. I know wisdom is important. I know it's, it's far better than being a fool. I know what it can do, but this is what I missed. There's one event that happened to them all. 
Death. Death. That was the real enemy. Every second that passed in his life, as he was developing plans, you can just see him in his plan with his engineers, this is what I want done. And they would be amazed at his wisdom too. But those seconds were passing by. He's dying. In the end, it's not going to matter. He's fighting the wrong enemy. He's older here, looking back on everything he has done. You can, you can see the regret in his words. He turns to himself, it says. He compared all his success to the foolish, who have very little, if any, earthly success. He looked from wisdom to madness to folly, he said. But in the end, what he concluded, the issue is not, does your wisdom exceed another person's? That's not the issue. He says, even those who come after him will have nothing new left to explore. I've done it all. What's it? And, and he knows, by the way, his son coming up, Rehoboam, Solomon is well aware that his son is a fool. And he's going to get the kingdom. And you see throughout this book how that bothers him. He understood having wisdom was far better under the sun than being a fool. He knew the truth of how a fool walks around in darkness. When you have wisdom, you can make right decisions. He said, however, what I missed with my wisdom, therefore I used it wrong, was the same common end of both. Death. Regardless of how successful or how much failure in your life, death finds us all. It does not matter how wise or how foolish. Solomon's seen it. Man, I'm Solomon realizes now. In other words, he's looking at his life, and as he's gotten older, he realizes this was vanity. I'm going to die. Although there's a major difference between a foolish man's house and a wise man's house, or Solomon's house, that can be dramatic. Their grave looks the same. That's what Solomon's seeing. He's realizing, what I have given my strength for these years for and trying to find meaning and purpose, it was vanity, it was for nothing. This is a man who, by humanistic standards, accomplished more than anyone. And he's pleading with us, don't follow my path. I missed what it was about. He's saying the enemy was death. The same thing, even though I have all this wisdom, I'm going to die just like the fool is. That thought was torturing him. You can conquer the entire world, but if you don't conquer death, it's all vanity. Solomon found that out. He's realizing there's no conquering of death without God. Death is the end of all, and that is what has to be dealt with for anything to matter. 
Everything else is vanity. The fact is, in the end, on this earth, all will be forgotten. The labor of our hands. I mean, think about this. You've heard me say it many times. A hundred years from now, from nursery on up, none of us are going to be here. hundred That's not a long time. Come 21, 22, all of us will be gone. Every single person in this building will be gone. If the Lord tarries, He doesn't come in the next hundred years, this will be a whole new group of people in here. They might have to look through historical documents to figure out who is who, but they won't know who you are. Who is that? It won't matter. The man living life apart from God, you're fighting the wrong enemy. You're spinning your wheels. You're wasting the energy, the precious moments that have been given to you of life. The seconds that are passing by, you're just wasting them over and over on things that don't matter. And one day, death will find you. Now, Christian, think about this. Through Christ, we've conquered death. I already have eternal life. I will never be separated from God. Why does this matter? Because now I can work for the kingdom of God. Get this. Think if Solomon used his wisdom for the kingdom of God. It would never end. The work he would have accomplished would matter for eternity. What we do now in our efforts for the Lord, it matters for eternity. Solomon tried to live life under the sun. And he realized the day hit him. What have I done? When I am dead, this is all over with. It doesn't matter who comes after It doesn't matter who comes after It's over with. He did not make an eternal difference. The treasures that I have collected will belong to another man. That strong room I got in my house, the treasure room, when I'm gone, nothing I can do about it now. But had he stored treasures in heaven, <laughs> it, would have made it, it, it would have been safe for eternity. And here's where the danger comes in. Look at this. Look at verse 17. He says, Therefore, I hated life. Because the works that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirits. Understand the highs and lows of this man right now. All right? We're not dealing with somebody who's struggling with some mental illness or anything of the sort. He is a man who said earlier, I was great. Not coming from a prideful standpoint. That wasn't one of his sins. He was simply stating a fact. I was great. And now when he actually looks it over, he realizes, no. In truth, I am nothing. What he thought was great, the things he rejoiced in, he realized, I have wasted every single moment I had. From the time I turned from God. From the time I tried to find meaning in life under the sun. I hated life. 
what we see taking place here is this. Is when you're living life and you're giving your energy in those precious moments you have. And then you realize it was vanity. It opens the door for despair to come running in. For despair to grab hold of your heart. And in Solomon's heart, despair had arrived. When he looked at his situation under the sun, here was his problem with all the wisdom he had. He could not find a solution. When you have spent your life on vanity or something that doesn't really matter, and that day comes when it hits, when D-Day comes, despair comes in. You better believe when Hitler realized by June 11th um, that they have almost a half million troops sitting there in France, he was in trouble. It was just a matter of time. Two major fronts just established. You better believe despair began to set in to the point he would take his own life. You could even think within Solomon, perhaps even thoughts of suicide entered his mind. doesn't tell us that, but he hated life. You can think of all those who have found really success. Uh, this week I was thinking on, uh, I enjoy sports, as you know, most sports, all the major ones, like baseball. I grew up on the Cleveland Indians. I grew up watching uh, a hitter. I used to love hit, actually. Him and his brother were both amazing. Giambi. Took his life this week. I don't know how old he was. I guess late 30s, early 40s would be my guess. I have no idea the circumstances around it. It just got released after we found out he was dead that he took his life. But despair had set in. It didn't matter that he was one of the more famous athletes of our nation. He had all the funds anybody can want taken care of for his life. <clears throat> there is a... Uh, this is disputed, and, and I'll, I'll certainly be straightforward with that, that before Steve Jobs died, there's, there's said they'd wrote an essay... We don't know if he did or didn't. That's just the truth of it. Those who say he did write it, they don't know for sure. And those who say there's funny, he didn't write it, they don't know for sure. Because his family will not confirm or deny. That's just the truth. They will not say he did, they will not say he didn't. They know, but they're not saying either way. All right? But many say it's attributed to Steve Jobs that he wrote this essay in his last few months before death took him. And so regardless of who wrote it, it has a pretty powerful message. Let me, read. Let me read portions of it here. It says, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is the epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. And those of you know the story from even denying the daughter that was his, and there's a, the family that, that he just, well, there's a lot there. He said, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, my wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on my bed and recalling my life, I realized that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of my death. By the way, he, became a, a, he was a Buddhist. I don't know if you know that or not. He left his Lutheran background and became a Buddhist. You can employ someone to drive the car for you, make money for you, but you cannot have someone bear your sickness for you. Material things lost can be found or replaced. 
But there is one thing that can never be found when it's lost. Life. He's realizing the real enemy was death. Whatever stage in life you're in right now, with time, you will face the day when the curtain falls. Treasure love for your family, love for your spouse, love for your friends. Treat yourself well and cherish others. As we grow older and hopefully wiser, we realize that a $3,000 or a $30 watch both tell the same time. You will realize that your true inner happiness does not come from the material things in this world. Whether you fly first class or economy, if the plane goes down, you go down with it. Therefore, I hope you realize when you have mates, buddies, and old friends, brothers and sisters, who you chat with, laugh with, talk with, sing with, talk about, northeast, uh, west, or heaven and earth, that is true happiness. Don't educate your children to be rich. Educate them to be happy. So when they grow up, they will know the value of things instead of the price of things. Now, again, I don't know if he actually wrote that or not. I'm not certain. But nonetheless, the point is well taken. Listen, to all of us, to our young people, focus on what's really important. Focus on things that will matter for eternity. That doesn't mean you have to up and leave your career. It means you change the purpose of why you're doing it. That it's not about money, that it's not about your position, it's not about what makes you look good. It's about what will glorify and honor God. The key is fighting the right enemy. The key is putting your time and efforts into things that when life is all said and done, it's not vanity. The first step in order to conquer death is understanding what Jesus Christ did for you. You see, that death is separation from God for an eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. It really is incredible what He did. The Lord, knowing that He would judge us, that we are facing a very real hell. God, in order to save us from that, He Himself became a man. Lived on this earth 2,000 years ago as a man. 30-some years here on this earth. And he lived the perfect life. He lived that perfect life for you. And yet we we try to turn to so many other things, thinking that's just not enough. Thinking, well, it's in our church, it's in our religion. Failing to see the obvious deception of Satan within the gospel itself. Oh, his, his death really isn't quite enough. You need to be members of the church, and we will determine your salvation. I got news for you. My salvation is determined by the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. There is no other power that has that. It's not, and we'll look at that It's not when I get in that water. That water is not going to wash away my sin. It's not when, by living a good life and turning over a new leaf. It's in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Don't add to it. That has been the deception since the first century for those who try and follow God in Christ. He adds to it and adds to it and adds to it. Paul pleading with the Galatians, Are you so foolish having begun in faith? Now you're turning to works. This was a church who, these were churches that heard the Apostle Paul preach, and like that they were deceived. Anybody that is adding to the gospel, 
you can know that is Satan appearing as an angel of light. The Lord Jesus Christ came down to this earth. He is the substitute for us. It is by repentance and faith in Christ alone. Paul was clear in Galatians. When you add to it, you missed it. You have believed in vain. It is Christ alone. He died for you. He took your place in judgment. That He could at the same time give you His perfect life. That when you stand before God, it looks as if you are perfect. That's God's requirement. The Lord Jesus Christ Christ lived that perfect life for you. He became, as the Bible describes in great imagery, the second Adam. The first Adam, we're all sinners. We've got a sin nature because of what took place. So he says, I'm going to send another Adam, my son. The first Adam brought death. This one brings life, eternal life. It's only in him. With heads bowed and eyes closed.